0: You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedwin Sound Clash, iMother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as the lead guitarist and backing vocalist for the three-time Juno-nominated band, Colorado. So welcome to the podcast, Nixon Boyd. Nixon, how are you, and how much has your life
1: changed over the last few months since becoming a proud papa? (laughs) Hey, Joel. Um, Great to be here, man, first of all. And uh, what a question to start with um, it's been an absolute blast, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, along with, uh, the arrival of our kid, our little boy, um, you know, my wife and I were both in the arts. Uh, so, um, you know, on one hand we make our own schedules, which makes, you know, parenting, uh, in theory easier, but on the second hand, you know, we, we're constantly juggling a lot of projects. So, Uh, we're, um, we're learning how to cover for each other, how to ask for help, um, how to, you know, make the most of our quality time together. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, how to make it all work. And on a scale of one to 10, how sleep deprived are you? (laughs) You know what? I'm not bad right now. I'm I'm maybe at a, like a six or a six and a half. Um, he, you know, we, I think we got really lucky. We got a, a good sleeper. Uh, in, in the house. That's like the number one quality you could ask for. It's in a, a huge in a quality. Kid. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> made it really easy to, um, to like the little guy, <laughs> um, during the first few weeks, uh, that wasn't the story, but he, uh, yeah, found his groove really fast. So that has helped make things work a lot as well. And for someone like me that doesn't have any
0: kids, can, can you put into words, uh how much it 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 changes you as a person my understanding is we're all a, a little selfish it's just uh, you know we can we can be nice people we can be giving but there's this underlying selfishness of like this is my life this is my adventure i'm number 1 uh and it's only once you've had a kid where it's the first time where you're not number 1 it's it's the first time that you'll actually put yourself behind someone else that will not survive without you stepping up. Uh, is there any truth to that?
1: Uh, I mean, definitely. Uh, you know, I think we all like to think of ourselves as, you know, nice people, generous people. Um, but I think you don't realize uh, you know, just how generous or how maybe ungenerous <laughs> you are with your time uh until there's uh, you know, somebody out there that, you know, truly needs you. <laughs> for their, you know, for their survival, for their upbringing, um, for their development. Uh, you know, I uh, ha- have definitely had to reckon with the realization that I, you know, I've taken a path here, uh, you know, as an artist where you, you do need a lot of time. You need a lot of time to, you know, figure out your ideas. Let's say if you're songwriting, um, work in the studio takes a long time, uh, you know, to get a song right. Um, traveling takes a long time. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, it didn't totally occur to me how, um, how much time I demanded for myself (laughs) uh, until, uh, until we had our little boy. Um, But, you know, now that I think um, I have been able to make those realizations, um, you know, the, the way forward, and the only thing that makes sense to me is to Um, you know, to really, to really value a value, the time that that you do have for yourself and not squander it, (laughs) you know, uh, you get a six hour stretch to work and you spend zero percent of it, uh, you know, checking your email or scrolling Facebook, um, because it's time to work. And then, you know, uh, by the same token, uh, when, uh, you are devoting time, uh, to a little kid, um. You, you know, that is a time where you're also a hundred percent on and you're a hundred percent there for them. <laughs> so, um, it's, uh, you know, when you have less time, I guess for me, when I have, when I, I have less time to go around, uh, the, you know, the time that you spend is less watered down. <laughs> it's like, it's highly concentrated, <laughs> uh, time doing, uh, whatever it's time to do. So last
0: question about kids, and then we'll dive into your music career here. But how how amazing is it that your your brother, uh, Jake, who's was also a member of Colorado and who I've had as a guest on this podcast, he also had his first kid uh, not too long ago. So how amazing is it that you both kind
1: of experience this together? It's super wicked. And it's uh, weirdly just a co- continuation of how our lives uh, in relation to one another have been, um, you know, since... Uh, you know, from growing up together to, you know, starting a band together to touring together, uh, and now, uh, experience this stage of our lives together, uh, weirdly feels normal. (laughs) That's awesome. Now, uh, I I
0: like to start off the interviews by sharing with our listeners, how the guests and I know each other, just showing the importance of networking, of building community, of fostering relationships. So in our case, uh, You grew up in Manatek, and I grew up in Russell, uh, just a few towns over. And, you know, we're probably around the same age. So we grew up in the same Ottawa music scene uh, in the mid to late 2000s. And, uh, you know, I remember your band had this buzz going on and my drummer Anto would always talk about Colorado and they're doing this and they're doing that. So, uh, you know, I remember you guys going all the way back to the beginning and I actually ended up moving to the GTA and with your success, you guys had a lot of stuff going on in the GTA. So I, uh, I saw you guys in Halton Hills. You were headlining a festival. This was uh, in 2014. 14, I believe and yep. then I was actually in your desire uh, music video at the horseshoe I was there for the filming and you guys did a concert there and then if we fast forward to just a, a few months ago uh, your brother was the special guest at an open mic in Ottawa uh, that that I, I attend and right. you came out and and we reconnected there so that's kind of the lineage of how we ended up uh, where we are here today
1: Yeah, totally. Um, It's uh, kind of a small world, (laughs) you know, the art scene in Canada, especially the music scene in Canada. um, If you spend any time at all, uh, going to shows, uh, or, um, you know, making music, I feel like in any capacity, um, you know, the longer the do it, the longer you do it, the more likely it is that you're going to kind of meet just everybody who else who does it. (laughs) So I wanted to kick off this episode
0: powerfully. So I reached out to somebody to help me out. And I have some kind words sent in from Darren Pfeiffer, the no uh, uh, incredible drummer for Goldfinger, for Sum 41, for the Salads, radio personality. Uh, this guy's amazing. And uh, this is what he said. He said, Nixon is a great human being, an incredible musician, and a friend. I'm so happy for his continued success. So that's from Darren Pfeiffer.
1: That's so sweet. Uh I love Darren. He um, helped sort of guide us early on um, in our in our careers and encouraged us a lot, Um, took an interest in what we were making, you know, offered like really helpful thoughts when we were extremely green with regards to the music industry. Um, And yeah, was just an all around great guy and definitely a friend. So that is, um, yeah, really touching to hear.
0: And, and it's not only that he has all this experience as a musician, having found success in the music industry, but he ran a record label management. Uh, he he was a radio personality at the edge. So it's like this guy has been there and done it and and he can help guide you moving
1: forward. Totally. Yep. He um was a total, a total beacon for us early on and we remain friends ever since. And we connect every so often um, whenever the opportunity arises, that's um. Quite a surprise <laughs> to like hear a little snippet from him. There we go. So uh, we're gonna
0: do the full two hour deep dive. We're gonna cover your life, your career, your discography, but we're gonna get started all the way back at the beginning. So uh, where does this love of music come from? And
1: is there an earliest musical m- memory that comes to you now? Uh, you know, I think like with most people, uh, it comes from being exposed to music uh, just while I was growing up in my house. Um, uh, more so just in terms of records that were played, both my parents loved, you know, and still love, uh, you know, sixties rock and roll, uh, and, uh, as, you know, as time progressed, they would, you know, they would, uh, often get into sort of the latest, like cool thing, um, you know, through the eighties when I was born and on into the nineties, I feel like they you know, were introducing me to things, you know, at, you know, seven years old, my dad was a huge Nirvana fan and has remained one ever since. Uh, and he's always been a huge Frank Zappa fan, Rolling Stones, you know, ba- going back to the sixties Beatles. Um, so, you know, so there, a seed was definitely planted there. Um, but, you know, maybe one uh, of the real drivers of my interest in making music um, and not just appreciating it was my grandfather, who um, showed me um, his music, uh, and which I also fell in love with. He was a huge fan of Johnny Cash, um, and um, you know other other country music from that era, but also big band music, Glenn Miller, Artie Shaw, um, you know uh, Bix um and and going even further back, uh, you know like marching band music, <laughs> which I loved and. Um, I think he caught on to the fact that um I was pretty intrigued in this stuff. Um, and so for a certain stretch of my childhood, um, a visit to his place would mean making mixtapes uh where he we would um he would fire up his turntable uh and we would choose a song to record to a tape so that I could take it and we could play it in like my parents' car on my drive home or for the, the next few weeks until I saw him again. Um, and interspersed with each song, he had a little microphone set up. So he would do like a little DJ act and would do actually little interviews with me asking me what I liked about the song we just recorded to the tape, uh, you know, and I would answer and and often it would be, you know, for the marching music, I'd be, you know, marching around uh, his living room uh, for, the, for the Johnny Cash stuff. Um, you know, I would be, you know, trying to figure out the words, Um, and, uh, so on and so forth, um, to sort of, you know, gain an understanding of what it meant to like talk about music and appreciate it and get your hands dirty with it a little bit.
0: Did your grandpa
1: have a DJ name while he was making these (laughs) mixtapes? No. DJ Gramps? I I wish. Yeah. You know what? Maybe he's still, he's still going. He's 93 years old. And, uh, and I think uh, next time I see him, I have to tell him I realized, Uh, you know, hey, hey, I just realized what your DJ name should be. I'm not sure what I'm going to tell him yet. But um, I think that's a that's a nice topic of conversation (laughs) for the next time I go. Can we take a moment to acknowledge your dad and your grandpa's exquisite
0: taste in music? I mean, all those artists <laughs> you named are are pretty amazing. You you could have been brought up on on terrible music, but no, the <laughs> yeah, uh, well, the rock and roll god smiled in your favor with your parents
1: and your grandpa. I I think that stuff is great, and I think um yeah, I I also think it gave me an appreciation for um, um you know some essential quality that all good stuff has um uh you know hopefully a quality that transcends genre that has more to do with um expression uh you know um a song's ability to express something successfully as opposed to as opposed to a certain tone being either cool or not cool um you know because big band stuff is like um you know unrelentingly just like joyful for the most part um. Whereas, uh, you know, the Rolling the Rolling Stones are sort of sour and sardonic. Uh, you know, vastly different tones, but still equally successful in s- expressing what they set out to express. So, your dad.
0: Your grandpa, your mom, they got you into listening to music and appreciating music and loving music. How mm. how do you transition from just uh someone that enjoys music to actually picking up an instrument? I assume guitar is your first instrument, but I could be wrong. Uh,
1: yeah, well, no, actually. So this is where my other, my uh paternal grandfather comes in. The DJ granddad was my mom's uh on my mom's side. Uh my uh, um, my dad's dad was a violin player, um, and he gave me a violin when I was, I think five. So that was my first instrument. And I played it for, um, for seven years. I, I, um, did the, you know, the classical, uh, you know, regimen regimented sort of learning approach to violin, learned how to read music, uh, learn music theory, um, you know, got to the point where, uh, you know, I could play in the house as a little kid, and nobody was running for cover because of how terrible it sounded. Um, you know, and did like little competitions and stuff, um, sort of as you know, just part of when you're, uh, you know, if, if you know, when you have a certain certain teacher and they think you're good, they they sign you up for these things, and you go and play in churches alongside tons of other kids, and uh, uh, you sort of gain a gain a confidence playing on stage and in front of people. Um that you know that it wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Um, and then of course, when I when I turned 12 or I guess 12 or 13, um I to my great discredit thought the violin wasn't cool and wanted to play guitar instead. <laughs> so I switched to guitar and unfortunately don't pick up the violin very much anymore. Um, but um, you know, I I you know have to credit yeah, that um, my other granddad for for getting me into the violin as a player himself. Um, and, you know, for maybe, you know, encouraging my parents to to like sign me up for lessons by um, by giving us an instrument I could use. So guitar
0: kicks in around 12 years old. Is it later on that the singing that the songwriting comes in?
1: It's actually kind of right away. Um, it's it's always been interwoven with my interest uh, in the guitar. Um, You know, it's really fun to learn to play solos, (laughs) copying blues records, you know, as a teenager, uh, you know, uh, is is one of the most exciting feelings I can remember ever having. (laughs) And like, you know, bending notes and doing things like Eric Clapton, you know, on his Cream Records. Uh, or you know Jimi hendrix or steve ray vaughn you feel like an absolute god <laughs> when you learn, first learn to copy other guys solos and that's really fun but um yeah sort of going back to um you know the the goal of a song um i've always had had this urge to like um use the guitar um as one piece of the puzzle uh in tandem you know with lyrics with with Uh, written words, um, to like put together an entire picture, put together, um, a whole message. Uh, and, uh, that, so that took place pretty much right away. I was writing little songs and recording them, you know, obviously I knew how to use a tape deck. I'd been doing it for years with my, my granddad. Um, so I would record little songs on like a Fisher price, uh, tape deck, little microphone, uh, you know, to just get little song ideas, uh, down onto tape, uh, pretty much right away. And, uh, they, uh, they were, uh, you know, rudimentary and like extremely dramatic, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, like stories of like, you know, uh, I don't know, superheroes doing stuff that I was into, um, or like, uh, you know, little songs about the family dog. Um or like Christmas songs that I thought were super clever, you know, doing like a blues version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that I thought it was so clever. Um, but still, you know, that gives you practice and it sort of doesn't matter what you're writing about, even at any given time, even, even to this day. Um, you know, my feeling is that as, as long as you're doing it, something, something you really like is going to come along uh, at some point. Do you
0: think the experience with your grandpa using the tape recorder do you think that planted the seed for eventually becoming an audio engineer and a producer like that do you think that's like the the starting of that thread that led to where your focus is now
1: I think so definitely you know I I looked up to him so much that that I feel like maybe interwoven in my in my enjoyment of being a producer has to do with How much I got uh, as a little kid out of him, um, you know, curating these mixtapes for me and with me Um, and uh, just, you know, the level of excitement that goes along with, you know, the discovery of of new music and the. you know, the sort of capturing it in a way, you know, even though we weren't making our upper own songs, we were making uh, our own mix, our own mixtapes, we were making our own playlists. Um, and uh, that's not too different, you know, from, you know, recording your own song, every, every song comes with its own influences, and you're just trying to capture, you um, know, you know, your own blend of those influences as an artist. And there's something similar to that um, uh, in making a playlist in, you know, literally um, peppering your own influences just as a, as a full sequence, as opposed to like sort of meshing them in and hiding them into a single song. And I think there's an absolute kinship there. And I think, um, I think that experience has stuck with me and given me a lot of enjoyment out of what do I, out of what I do now.
0: And which in which ways do you think that growing up in Manatech shaped you as a person and eventually as a musician? So my experience, you know, growing up in Russell back then, it was population maybe 3000 and now it's 30,000. It's really grown. But I feel like the small towns, there's a certain quality there that that shapes who you are as a person.
1: I think so. Definitely. First of all, there's not a lot to do. So you have to make up your own fun. Uh, Also, growing up in the suburbs. (laughs) usually means you have a little more space kids have a garage or a basement where they can get together um and not bother their two their parents too much with uh, the noise that they're making uh there was also like a pretty accessible little punk scene which i think is common for a lot of suburbs across north america uh at, you know accessible because it just takes place in the community center and you don't and it's you know, it's not hidden from view. It's happening, happening in a way that's obvious to everyone. Uh, and also they need acts. (laughs) So if you have a little band, uh, in, you know, in a little suburban town and there's a punk show happening a month from now, your chances of actually playing, uh, exist. (laughs) Uh, it's, it's a small time situation and kids are going to go one way or the other, but a small town promoter needs bands. And if you have a little band and you're, you know, 14, you actually have a chance to get on stage and play. And those were the first, I would say, like real shows that I did um, playing, uh, you know, those little, those little punk shows um, in Manitou. And did did you play in a few different bands before what would eventually
0: become Colorado? And if so, do you remember any of the band names? Our listeners love hearing
1: these ridiculous early band names oh man for sure uh <laughs> yeah punk, i was in two or three little punk bands um through like you know middle school so grades six seven eight and then high school you know grades nine to 12 um and then f- for the first couple of years in university college before we started colorado um i don't remember all the names i remember one was called none of the above and we won a battle of the bands because everybody voted <laughs> on the bands and our name was at the bottom uh, and everybody voted for none of the above <laughs> for which bands should win. That's genius. Uh, having no memory whatsoever of the fact that that was our band name. Uh, but hey, I'll, you know, you take the wins that you can get as a musician <laughs> and we took that one. <laughs> that was an important one to add to your your bio yeah. at the <laughs> yeah, start. Yeah, my resume. Yeah, without that Battle
0: of the Bands win, there'd be no Colorado. There'd be no six. I'm just joking. But uh, uh, I. I When I was promoting this episode that you were coming up in the next few weeks as a guest, uh, I put out the bat signal to the Colorado fans to send in fan questions. And I got a ton of questions. So I'm going to sprinkle them throughout the next two hours. And I got the first one here. So this is from Michael Wynn. And his question is, where does the first name Nixon come from? Do you have any history behind
1: that? (laughs) That's funny. Uh, I know, Mike. I know, Michael Wynn. Um he's uh like he's basically my cousin. <laughs> so it's funny that he would want to ask that question. I guess it's funny he's never asked you that personally. Yeah, he he could just have sends asked it me, into a podcast. He was yeah. at a he was at a show at Royal Mountain Records the other day that I was at and he literally could have asked me. Um that it's a family name. So it's my um mom's grandmother's maiden name. Uh and uh, uh but I like to tell people that my my friends are just hardcore Republicans. There you go. Yeah. Uh, as, as a kid,
0: if I were to ask you what you want to be when you grew up, what would you have answered? So let's say, you know, at some point you you figured out that you wanted to be a professional musician. But before that, was there anything you wanted to be as a kid when you were when you grew up?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I wanted to be a pilot forever. And um, for as long as I can remember, that was the earliest thing I ever wanted to be. Because um, my dad was a pilot, and I grew up on Air Force bases, so would see planes flying over, really cool planes flying overhead every twenty minutes, and that makes a huge impression on a little boy. Okay, um, is
0: it? I've heard that you can't be a pilot if you're colorblind. You know if that's true? Have
1: you have you I heard that? I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I never looked into it hard enough uh, as I sort of made my way up. You know, in, in through high school um and college, um I I sort of lost the desire to be a pilot, thought I maybe wanted to be like an aeronautical engineer. So I went to school for engineering and uh never <laughs> looked into the pilot thing after like, you know, age 10 or something, age 13. Yeah, I don't
0: even know where, where I heard that, but I heard that. So I don't know if it's as a pilot, there's certain things, if you're colorblind, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to see that could be potentially
1: fatal. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, def- there are definitely a lot of things. Uh, You know, I heard, oh, you know, you can't, you can't smoke weed and be a pilot. Uh, And, you know, I don't smoke a lot of any weed, any, a lot of weed anymore, but there was a time where that would have been, uh. You know, an absolute reason not to become a pilot. That's a deal breaker you know, right age, there. Age 18, let's say age 18 me would be like, uh, ah, screw that. You know, weed's more important than having a cool job. <laughs> so if I knew you at 12 and
0: you invited me over from Russell over to Manatic, uh, who who would I be hanging out with? What was Nixon Boyd like at uh, 12? You'd probably
1: be hanging out with me and Jake. Uh maybe a few friends. Maybe we'd be try skateboarding. Uh we might um we might play a little music. We might jam in the basement or the garage. Um we might uh yeah, we might just be hanging out uh like kids do in the suburbs, just walking around doing nothing, going to get candy at the 7 Eleven. Um those were the best days. (laughs) Yeah, those those are fun days. Uh, you know, um it's just anything, anything to pass the time for sure. So if we remain friends from 12
0: years old to 16 years old, and at 16, you invited me over, you were excited, you wanted to show me some new albums. What music would you be
1: playing for me at 16? Cool. I'd probably be playing uh, maybe a NoFX album, uh, other punk albums. I think I was 16 when I, when NoFX put out uh, this um punk opera called the decline which is this amazing um political statement uh, uh running through an 18 minute song it's funny cuz green day gets all this credit for coming out with the first sort of political concept album in american idiot um and they there was a rock opera element to that um in jesus of suburbia but no effects did it easily 5 years before uh and they i mean they were a political band from the get go, whereas Green Day was not. Um, so I was really into I was really into that band at that time. Uh, and other political punk rock, bad religion, uh, anti-flag strike anywhere. Uh, all uh, was really compelling to me at that time and still is, um, you know, to some degree, I still I still feel like um, I still feel like that music it has remained pretty current. So, with me hosting this podcast,
0: I check the pod, the music podcast charts frequently just to see who's doing well, what I can learn from them, where this podcast fits in. And uh, Fat Mike from No Effects has a top ten pod music podcast in Canada called Fat Mike's Fat Mike, which is pretty cool. Um, so, dope. if you if you
1: weren't aware, maybe maybe that's one where uh, you would I enjoy. Actually- yeah, I actually just became aware of of that podcast. And I do have to check it out. I think he yeah, he's one of my uh one of my all-time heroes. Um and <laughs> yeah, I haven't listened, but I can imagine uh it would be um pretty much nothing off the table kind of conversation. Do you remember the first concert that you attended? And did you ever end up seeing No Effects? I saw no effects but not it wasn't my first concert the first concert i went to was with jake and Mennow, and it was green day and the foo fighters um at uh you know edge fest 98 or 99 in in ottawa what a double bill dude it was amazing it was the color and the shape era foo fighters uh and nimrod era green day and to me, I mean, Green Day has done some great stuff. To me, the Foo Fighters haven't topped that record ever. Uh, and I was a, I was a huge fan. Actually, the first record I bought was The Color and the Shape, uh, followed very closely by Nimrod. <laughs> and then they both crazily came uh, to to Ottawa, of all places, on this tour. And um, yeah, that, that has stuck with me for a long time. Uh, I wound up crowd surfing and got on much music and was so proud uh, of, uh, uh, you know, of my ability to be as cool as I thought I was <laughs> doing, uh, you know, doing the crowd surfing thing, which I don't think I've done since once. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It, it You did it once you ended up on TV. You can't top that. So you just yeah, stop like, doing I'm, it. It's all I'm damn good. Cool. I'm good. You know, mosh pits are fun and everything. But um, I love to watch and kind of think about the music <laughs> as opposed to just freak out over music. Um, but I, but I got, I got a good crowd surfing in that first time. That was amazing. So I saw the Foo Fighters in Ottawa just a year after
0: you. So I saw them in 2000. Uh, Our Lady Peace put together a massive festival called the Somersault Festival, Right. Uh, So in 2000, they came to Ottawa. So it was the um, Rideau Carlton Raceway, like the outside, they put out a big stage. And this festival aged like a fine wine. When I look back at the poster, uh, Our Lady Peace, Foo Fighters, A Perfect Circle, Finger Eleven, Catherine Wheel, Smashing Pumpkins, Whoa. Um Sum 41 had just put out their first album so they wow. were the very opener uh Sum 41 Trouble Charger like it was the craziest yeah. festival so good for yeah good for
1: our lady peace <laughs> it's amazing
0: yeah Whoa. when I when I had uh their their drummer Jeremy Taggart on the podcast and I asked him like I put up a picture of the poster being like man you guys put together such a great lineup for this festival he said we literally picked our favorite bands and asked if they wanted to tour with us so that's why it
1: ended up as uh, such a good lineup that's incredible uh and they were one of the biggest bands in the world at the time so uh they could pull those names in uh and uh yeah had pretty good taste that's crazy the smashing pumpkins now sort of mixed in on a bill like that is insane yeah, I just saw them uh, in
0: Ottawa maybe 2 weeks ago. They were here at the arena playing and uh, and it was great. When when did you start jamming with your brother? So you you both had the music in the family, you both pick up your own instruments. Doesn't necessarily mean you're actually playing together. Do you do you
1: remember at what point you started jamming together? Yeah, it wasn't right away. It's funny, we both played drums and guitar and could have at any time started playing music together um but it's weird when you're two years apart and you're say 12 and 14 uh or 14 and 16 you are under this weird illusion that you don't share that much in common that you're extremely you know that you uh are that your age is way more of a factor than it really is so he had his own like little bands with his friends and i had my own little bands with my friends and we didn't really mix until we were like you know, like 17, 19, um, almost like at the, all, I almost had to basically move away from home and start college for for it to be cool to then come back and us want to play together. The desire just wasn't there up until that point. And then I think it seemed special and it seemed, um, you know, compelling as like a cool idea. Oh, we're we're back, you know, under the same roof. We should jam a little bit. And um, that was basically uh, that basically led that didn't let up after that point, because Colorado started within the next year and a half, basically. So we have a, a fan question
0: from Drew Rogers, and his question is best and worst part of
1: being in a band with your little brother. <laughs> Drew Rogers is one of my oldest friends. You said these people were fans, but it turns out they're just my closest friends and family. Well, uh, they
0: they they can be friends and family and and love the band.
1: So. I guess they can be both. Um, Drew Rogers, what best and worst worst part of being in a band with your uh, brother. with your little brother? Um, you know, maybe <laughs> I feel like it's almost both good and bad. Like everything about it is both good and bad. Uh, you know it's cool that, you know, you can come home from the hall for the holidays together and you have all these stories to tell about being on tour, but it's also bad because, uh, you know, there's another person there in the house that knows all your tour stories, uh, when you're sitting down to dinner with your parents and you may not want that. Sometimes it's fun, but it's a double-edged sword for sure. (laughs) Um, you know, and there's, there's like classic band dynamic stuff, 99% of the time you get along great, but that 1% of the time where you don't, it's like, it's apocalyptic and it's like a family argument on top of being a bandmate argument, which, uh, you know, when those, you compound those two things, I can't picture a more, um, you know, a more terrible scene, <laughs> a more intense fight. Uh, so it's either it's either great, uh, you know, like I said, 99% of the time, but when it blows up, it, it really goes. So I
0: recently had Seamus from the sheepdogs on
1: the podcast and, uh,
0: his, his brother Ewan is also in the sheepdog. So I asked him the question and, uh, he said the best part is they have this, like just understanding of music together where one guy's thinking something and the other guy knows what he's talking about and, and they just have this synergy that works and uh he also said the great thing is by having a brother in the band when you're touring it's like you know someone always has your back and uh you know i joke that like if ever a fight breaks out you know at least one guy has your back and he's like yeah that's actually happened before on tour and he said the oh. worst part is uh that he, his brother is the older brother he said you know my my brother would pull the big brother card uh frequently you know he right. would take uh he, he would take the um What's the word? He would take ownership of situations because, right. you know, the lifelong Big Brother. So did you ever play
1: the Big Brother card? I don't think I ever did. I I think we fell into, you know, for better or worse, a pretty democratic slash, you know, um, you know, our anarchic, I want to say, situation politically in the band where everybody's voice had the same weight. And I feel like the band dynamic for us took precedence over the the family dynamic uh you know everywhere we went we were there kind of first as bandmates and second as brothers but by the same token the two are really closely linked there's a sibling element to to what you do as as band members you go through a lot together and um you you know some you know most of the time you're there for each other but um, you know, as with any family, uh, sometimes you, um, you you know, you misstep and you hurt somebody's feelings or, y- you know, you don't, uh, you know, quite uh, be the sibling that, that that person needs at the time, um, you know, as it's the same thing when it comes to bands. And, uh, and so, yeah, I guess like, you know, the sibling element I- is there. For all the band members, um, you know, kind of first and foremost. And yeah, I felt, I don't know, it, it's weird, but the the sibling element melted away a little bit, I think, in the um in the context of a band because we were all just kind of equals, it felt like. Can you
0: rapid fire through some of the jobs that you had leading up to? becoming a professional musician where Colorado takes off. And that's the full time focus. Our listeners just love to hear that uh, these guests, these rock stars are real people like us that that, you know, ha- had some crappy jobs along the way.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Okay, um, I was uh, a roofer. I was uh, a gardener, like a landscaper. Uh, for a while, I cleaned out dead people's houses. For an estate company for a while i worked in a flower warehouse sorting uh types of flowers and basically a massive refrigerator um so that during even during the summer i'd be on the subway and have to take a winter jacket with me uh (laughs) in order to use it at work um yeah what else well i i also did some teaching i taught guitar um i oh my god what else um compared to the other jobs the teaching sounds pretty good. For sure. I and I still, you know, I feel like I take that with me a little bit. Um when you're in the studio with a band there's there's a bit of a leadership role um happening there and um I think the experience of sort of teaching guitar and uh, you know opening people's eyes to um you know either musical theory or you know cool songs that might, might inspire them to want to learn them. Um, has um a bit of a kinship with the act of producing music. You're, you know, keeping everybody excited about what you're doing and you're offering up possibilities without pushing anybody in a direction, trying to trying to make it so that everybody in the room has their mind open to to possibilities and um uh, and, and good ideas as they come along. So, yeah, definitely. I I certainly didn't mind teaching. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of any other, like, just really, Oh, of course we, we had a moving company. We, uh, when we first got our band van, we had a moving company called Hollerado H-A-U-L and moved people's stuff. I think for like a hundred dollars, we would move entire apartments. Um, For like, you know, six months, I think this was our main source of income and we could pay for our rent. You know, we were living in Montreal when we um, when we first got together before, you know, uh, later moving to Toronto, we were, um, yeah, making enough to live in Montreal, which you don't need much and paying for our jam space, which is also like basically a condemned building. So it also didn't cost very much by just moving people um we also you know we did construction we built you know we jammed in a space that was owned by like this jam space lord who just kept building jam spaces and he hired us uh to build jam spaces he hired us to you know this is also not something i'm proud of but he hired us to like steal garbage cans so that he could use them in his jam spaces uh you know so we would you know if we we're in a big parking lot somewhere and we saw big trash cans we thought nobody was using we'd throw them in the van and we'd yeah sell them to our champ space lord um, if that's the worst thing you've done you you've you' it's, it's pretty good it's bad you know you you realize that you know as you get older that everything costs money and I mean you know everything costs money but you don't care as a kid uh so you do stupid stuff like that um and we started to feel bad so we stopped doing that. <laughs> You you you've
0: done the extremes of jobs from the hottest job being on a roof in the summer to the coldest job being in a freezer with flowers. So do 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 those extremes of jobs make you appreciate uh, being in the studio today in a beautiful studio, working on music, helping other musicians live out their dreams by fleshing out their songs and recording and getting them out into the world? Man, I super
1: appreciate it. I really appreciate the trust people put in me with their music. I know how important my music is to me. And I know how thankful I am for the producers that worked with me to bring it all to life. Um, So I, you know, being on the other end now, uh, a lot of the time, I really appreciate the people, the trust people put in me. And I also appreciate the expectation they have um, that, you know, that, A, we're going to make their Uh, make their project as good as it can be. And B, hopefully it even exceeds their expectations. So, um, but I love that, that kind of challenge. And yeah, I appreciate it so much. Um, You know, if it ever, ever, if it ever comes to it and and I have to go back to being on a roof or being in a giant freezer, uh, I will. uh, But you know, that day has not come yet. So let's
0: dive into Colorado. Is, is it true that three quarters of the band lived on the same street in Manatech? Is this true?
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, you got me and Jake in the same house and then you have Meno two doors down from us. And uh, But you guys didn't jam back then, did you? We didn't right away. Although Menno taught me to play guitar. I, I told you I turned 12 and wanted to stop playing the violin and play guitar instead. Menno played electric guitar. And to me, that was... That was clearly the thing that I had to do. That was my purpose in life was to learn the guitar. And here was this kid. He was a couple years older than me who knew how to do it and he could show me. And that's how that's how I started. Um, and uh, the seeds were for the band were planted in that moment. You know, when he started showing me songs that he liked, I would learn them. I, you know, sometimes he would say, okay, bring a song that you like and I'll show you how to play it. Uh, And I would do that, you know, blues stuff, punk stuff, rock stuff. And we, you know, it turned from being lessons into a little bit more uh, of like, um, just like a musical show and tell, uh, you know, after a little bit of time. And we didn't start the band until, I want to say eight years after that. But from that moment, you know, playing music together was a thing. And
0: where did the idea of actually starting a band together come from? You guys already knew each other. You had already jammed together. Um, who who got the idea that, hey, there might be some
1: some magic here? Beno had a band that was wrapping up. Um, I guess he, they had been playing for like 10 years. They were called The Delegates. I don't know if you've ever heard of The Delegates.
0: So I actually, uh, on Twitter... Somebody that became a fan of the podcast after the Jeff Burroughs, the last episode with the Tea Party, um, he sent me a text saying, ask, ask uh, Nixon about the delegates. And I was like, what, the delegates? So I had to look into it and I couldn't find anything about the delegates. And I'm like, are you sure you have the information right? And he sent me a picture of the album that shows Meno in the delegates. And I was like, wow, this guy's super like did a deep dive beyond what i could find so i i know yeah. of the delegates because of a fan that sent in a question so
1: totally uh and they had been touring uh, i think they made three records um a couple great records anyways and they were wrapping up they uh some guys were moving away and that was winding down uh i you know was in a band that was also wrapping up uh and was in you know was in college at the time but we started in we started just like exploring the idea of making music together writing songs together and it started you know it started pretty casually just you know getting together um every once in a while to mess around with pro tools uh in you know just our kitchens or our living rooms or basements or whatever just briefly without really the goal of finishing anything um uh but i can't i can't remember how the conversation went there clearly was a conversation about yeah you know, really trying to write songs and um you know we were all busy with other things you know i i i think i had a summer off of school as did jake and, you know, Menno had a, like a little time as well. I think he was working a job of some kind uh, sort of as this band was wrapping up. But we took a couple of weeks one summer to just book everything off and hang out in a jam space uh, in Montreal. And we came away with uh, a like a bunch of songs that we loved. I don't think ever saw the light of day, <laughs> but we thought we thought they were great at the time. And that was enough to keep going and make plans to um, to continue writing and to start thinking about playing a show down the road.
0: Is there a story behind the band name Colorado? It's it's such a unique name.
1: Man, honestly, we loved the name Japan Droids. We thought it was so funny and a cool uh, what's the word portmanteau of words. Uh, we wanted to do the same thing, <laughs> and, and we just. Uh, through uh you know kept throwing ideas around I feel like it took us a month of just throwing ideas around for uh for names that had the same vibe as that or had the same sort of little trick as that and yeah Colorado just felt right you know our music was just kind of um I guess boisterous uh you know a little uh you know uh, a little bit fun a little bit loud a little bit. Um, loose, <laughs> and, and I feel like Colorado has the right amount of looseness going on. It's like it could be could be anything uh, that's done, you know, that involves shouting. <laughs> so is it holler and Colorado?
0: Ex- exactly. What is there something specific about
1: Colorado itself, or it's just the 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 word that that fit right? It felt yeah, it felt right. It it almost sounded like a like a rodeo term or something. Uh, which, which has an, un, you know, puts a, an image of something being a little unhinged in your mind. Uh, for, for that's why it worked for me. So, you
0: guys between 2007 and 2008, you guys recorded five different demos. So, these are demo in a bag. And, uh, me being in the Ottawa music scene, I at one point between 2007 and 2008, I received a, actual CD in a bag from you guys. So you guys were actually handing them out that way. Uh, (laughs) Can you talk about the recording of of the five different demos in a bag? and, And where did the idea of actually the distribution model of physically handing them out in a in a clear bag with a CD that was handwritten on? Where did that come from?
1: Yeah, I think this is a case of necessity being the mother of invention. We were just on tour and we had a few songs recorded but we obviously didn't press any CDs uh but we needed money for gas so we decided we had to sell our songs on a CD what's the cheapest way to do that we would bu- uh, we would buy <laughs> CD burners when CD burners were still a thing from future shop when future shop was still a thing and burn our songs onto blank CDs uh right demo in a bag on the CD and Sharpie and put them in a Ziploc bag, go into malls with disc men and walk around asking people if they would listen to our music. Usually people are nice enough and they don't have enough going on in a mall that they need to get somewhere and they have a little free time. Uh, They would listen to our music and kind of by, we would size up the person and decide what song to play. I think at that time we had like Americanorama, maybe on my own, uh maybe do the do to do to and a couple other songs and you would sort of take the stock of a person and decide whether they wanted a a rock tune or you know a lighter tune uh and play that song for them and sell hopefully the CD in a bag for five bucks, uh which hopefully cost you less than the, than a dollar to make. So uh you know with a little investment of time um with a day off on tour, we were able to make gas money and money to stay here and there and and just enough to keep going uh so it seemed honestly like such a foolproof way to do it uh the ziploc bag just protected the cd barely enough and packaged it barely enough that uh you know you could convince somebody to buy it from you just hand over fist in a mall playing it for them on your discman uh that it just that's where it started that's how it stuck the, uh, the Ziploc bag protected it enough that you could guarantee at least one listen before yeah, uh, it yeah, wasn't yeah, one, playable. One listen, uh, you know, you could get it home and have it not scratched to the point of unplayability. So in, in 2009, you guys won
0: the Big Money Shot Battle of the Bands. The first prize was $250,000. Uh, my band was a part of the Battle of the Bands in a different year, and uh, we we won just one night and got $5,000. Like We ended up right. getting equipment, and it, it was amazing. So uh, we have a fan question sent in. Uh, you know this guy, Mike Lamonde, known as an yeah. artist as Petty Cash. Uh, yeah. he, he has experience with you recording in your new studio, and uh, his question is, ask him about what his expectations were going in to winning the big money shot versus the reality of actually winning. So it sounds like the tone of his question is maybe the the winning of the $250,000 wasn't everything that you thought it would be. So I don't know if there's a story hmm. there, but you could take that however you want.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, first of all, we we entered that competition without any expectation of winning. We knew there was some really strong bands, and one of the bands that I think was our stiffest competition was called Amos the Transparent. Was Love still, that band! Yeah, it's such an amazing Ottawa band, and we, you know, it was absolutely not a given uh, that uh, we would be able to beat them, let alone all the other great bands uh, that were taking part. Um, but as, you know, as the rounds kept going and things get whittled down first from like 20 bands, then down to 10, uh, then down to like a final three or four, um, uh, you know, it it was crazy that there became more and more of a distinct possibility that, that we could win. Um, but you know, that being said, still when, when they announced us as the winner, it was pretty unbelievable. Um, you know, it meant that we could self-release our album. Nobody was really that interested in releasing our record, to be honest. Um, and we at that time had some connections though. You mentioned, we talked about Darren Pfeiffer at the beginning, uh, of this interview. He, you know, he had a label, he was working with labels and was able to put us in touch with other labels. And, uh, yeah, not much was coming of that. Um, we knew we were starting to be acquainted with, um sort of other people in the industry um you know, just from playing shows and our sh- shows were getting good, but we we didn't really have a lot of takers when it came to putting out our album. so it allowed us to distribute our record, which uh was the only reason <laughs> that we're that we're talking about my music career right now um you know, it allowed us to do everything ourselves um and sort of, maintain creative control too, along with it, um, you know, because we weren't begging for money from a label. Um, there were, you know, we, uh, we also didn't have, uh, sort of en- any creative thoughts coming from any labels. So we maintain total creative control in that way. Um, but you know, when it, when it came to the expectations, it's like, it seems like all the money in the world and it really is like, like, so much you can do so much with that and we wouldn't have been able to do what we did without it but you know at the same time you know there are still bands who get like you know and artists who get like million dollar million dollar investments um to kick to kick off the recording and marketing of their first record and uh you know to to a certain degree uh you know you can you can only compete uh, to, to, to a certain level, you know, depending on what your budget is. And you realize that really fast. We made, we made that money last. We recorded multiple albums with it. Like I said, we distributed, we bought a band van, toured. Uh, we toured. were able to buy like decent gear and record in better spots. But, you know, four people living off of that for like 10 years <laughs> doesn't go very far. Uh, you know, luck- luckily, um, you know, it allowed us to, to um, invest in ourselves in a way that we, you know, um, we're able to, to live off of our music. But, you know, at the same time, it's, uh, uh, you know, I guess my expectation was that is that it would last us forever. (laughs) And it definitely didn't last us forever.
0: So you're talking about the uh, record in a bag that you guys self-released in 2009. Uh, So It had the three singles, so Americanorama, Juliet, and Got to Lose. Uh, I have it up here on my wall of fame. Uh, I got the album cover here, and I remember getting it back in 2009 or 2010, And I remember listening and thinking, wow, they've done it. Like they've made a a local Ottawa band has made this incredible album. And I still listen to it to today. Uh, It's such a fantastic album start to finish. And uh, that's why it's displayed here on the wall of fame. These are my favorite albums from guests that have been on the podcast. And I guess so you guys made it available at the start as a free digital download Was that you were saying because there wasn't a label in place and you knew you had a
1: great album, you just wanted to get it out there? I think we were so proud of it. We just wanted to share it. Uh, And, you know, the industry was changing a lot at the time. There was, um, you know, a pretty quick shift away from CDs being the main thing to, um, you know, to, to downloading music. At the time, streaming wasn't a thing, but downloading certainly was. And yeah, it's like we cared less about, you know, making whatever $10 for one CD and more about making fans that we felt um, you know, hopefully if they like the record, they'd stick with us for years, you know, which is worth way more than $10 for a CD. So, so that was that was our thinking. And yeah, it's like. That was part of it. And again, we were just so proud of it that we wanted people to hear it. So we wanted to be there, there to be no impediments (laughs) to somebody listening to it if they wanted to download it for free, whatever you want. Uh, Just take it and listen to it. And hopefully we would see them at a show. And was record in a
0: bag? Was it made up of the best songs from the five different demo in a bag uh,
1: volumes or was it new new music? It was a combination. It was definitely some of the best of the best that we had written over the first sort of two years of writing songs. Uh, but there was also, yeah, there were also a few new songs. On My Own was a really early song. Americanorama was early-ish as well. Um, but stuff like Fake Drugs uh, and Juliet were were new. They were songs that we were writing um, within you Know a few months, uh, we started writing them a few months before going into the studio and finished them in the studio. Um, Riverside is another one that was fresh for the record, got to lose, um, had its debut on record in a bag. Walking on the Sea, um, and uh, geez, I'm forgetting, <laughs> I'm forgetting all the rest of the tunes right now, but like a lot of new material, but uh, you know, we. We weren't. We were under slightly less pressure because we felt like we already had good songs in stuff like "On My Own," and American "Americanorama," uh, and Do To Do To," which was an older one as well, um, that had come out on on our demos that we had released for free, and those you know, online and um, on CD that we were selling in malls in Ziploc bags. So a
0: year after you guys released it as a free digital download in uh, 2009 in, in 2010 uh, arts and crafts re-released the album. How
1: did you, how did you attract their attention? I think, uh, well, I think they just approached us. Um, I think we, you know, we sort of proved ourselves by putting our record out ourselves and, you know, I will say, as an aside, that's increasingly the model that labels take. Bands really have to prove themselves on their own before labels will take them on, for the most part, in indie music anyways. Maybe it's a little bit of a different story in pop music. Labels find, still find undiscovered artists and, um, and, you know, sort of bring them along, to, uh, you know, to a place where they are massive stars. But in indie music, it's still this way. Um, you kind of have to prove yourself and we did, our shows were getting bigger. Uh, our, you know, CD was doing well. We had at least one song starting to appear on the radio. Um, and actually Darren Pfeiffer was the first guy to play one of our songs on the radio. He played Juliet on the edge. <laughs> uh, so thanks Darren for that, man. I I forgot about that. Um, But I think that attracted arts and crafts, and we wanted a wider distribution than we were able to do ourselves. So it was really beneficial to us to tap into their network, their distribution network. Um, So, yeah, it was a no brainer for us. And I think, you know, maybe we were maybe it's the case that we were begging them (laughs) to distribute our album and they finally relented. So the the first single, Americanorama, uh,
0: it had two music videos that were both great but very different. What was the reason behind having two different music videos for that one song? We
1: made one that with Dave Foley that we thought was great. We thought it was a funny sort of takedown of Dove Cherney, the American apparel owner, uh, who we thought was just a total slimeball. Uh, And we had a great time making that one. And I still love that video. Um, But we got the opportunity to work with this up and coming director, Greg Jardin, who's done some amazing, amazing things since. But he was trying to cut his teeth. And we sort of caught him at this perfect moment where we could still afford him. But he he was this up and comer who had amazing ideas uh, and just, just needed, you know, material to pair his ideas with. I don't know how our song got pitched to him, uh, but it did, and he ended up having just the perfect idea um, with this human eight-bit machine uh, to pair with our our music, to pair with Rama. So we went for it, and we thought, um, you know, the first video was good. But this video had like really had a story, this up and coming director. It was visually very very striking and the technique behind it was fascinating. Uh, And we felt like um, it would just add to the discussion around our music. And it definitely did. And that was the kind of like one take video, right? The one you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's um, a grid of people arranged in a uh, like a 30 foot high scaffolding. Uh, Yeah, with a series of cues uh, uh, that they had to uh, undergo with like massive sort of cue cards, sort of human sized cue cards, a series of cue cards uh, that they had to memorize for the duration, not just of the song, but it was a slow down playback. So it was like a 10 minute, uh, you know, a 10 minute choreographed dance, basically, that all these people in this in this huge grid of scaffolding had to do. Um, organized all in in the mind of the director um, of Greg Jardin uh, ahead of time and drilled for the course of like a, a long weekend three days maybe in the row of drilling and practicing and then just one day to shoot one day of execution to get that perfect take and I think we did maybe eight takes of it and I think it was the last one or second last one that is the one in the video. That actually doesn't sound like that many takes
0: for how, not, how complicated it, all, it. That's how a well-oiled machine you guys
1: were having practice. It was all in the practice. It was practice, practice, practice. And then now we're doing it. Cameras have to be locked off. Focus has to be pulled. Uh, you know, uh, Everybody has to have everything memorized down to the last detail. Um, But it really it shows you how good humans are at, at remembering stuff if you just do it enough. Yeah, well, you you guys thought if you made this cool video
0: with this up and coming director that, you know, maybe you could get more eyeballs on the band and on that single. And you guys were right, because I remember seeing that video because it went viral. I, I remember people sharing it, people talking about it, articles about it. So that's how it came to me. I was like, "Oh my god, Colorado, like they they have this incredible video and it's gaining traction." Um so I I think that paid off. Do you remember it going viral? Like it it had like hundreds of thousands
1: of views back when I first saw it. For sure. We I remember that um, moment. It was um yeah, super exciting. Uh cuz all we were doing, you know, to sort of, you know, maintain maintain belief uh, in our project was we were playing shows. Okay, good. There's, you know, 80 people at this show, whereas there was 50 at the last one. Uh, okay. Like there was over a hundred people Um, where we played a couple shows in a row where we sold five CDs at both. That's encouraging. Uh, you know, so these little, just little morsels to keep you going or checking our MySpace. How many plays on our MySpace did we have? If anybody remembers that Um, to this, just massive confirmation, uh, along with, obviously, along with, um, the battle of the bands that, that we crazily won, uh, a short time later, you know, we got, um, uh, kind of a hit, I guess, with this video. And that was like, okay, we can really um, we've really captured people's attention. Uh, let's, let's keep going. (laughs) Every moment of being in a band, every moment of being in a band is an existential crisis about whether or not to move forward. And a lot of the time that question is just simmering in the back of your mind, you know, because you're just doing it. Uh, but at at any given time, uh, you know, every band could potentially call into question whether to move forward. (laughs) It's just a question of how far back in your heads it is at any given time. Yeah, I feel like it was the winning of the
0: uh, big money shot with the virality of the music video for the first single with then starting to hear Juliet on the radio as as a hit. I feel like that one, two, three punch like really... Shot Colorado into the stratosphere. Uh, Juliet is the band's most played song on Spotify. Four point eight million spins. That's just Spotify. So who knows what the numbers are adding in title and Apple Music and YouTube? Uh, Why do you think people love that song, Juliet so much? That's you know, I I love a ton of different Colorado songs. I'm familiar with the whole discography. That might be my favorite song. So I know why I love it. Why do you think other people love that song so much?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I don't know. I know that I love it. uh, So it makes sense to me that other people like it. Uh, I love I love the musicality of it. I think the lyric is good. Um, You know, I think when a lyric is good and a concept is good, whether or not people are paying attention to the lyrics, um, they it still has an effect whether or not um, it's obvious to people what a song is about. I think you can tell when a band or an artist believes in what they're singing about and when they have just a really great message. Um, and that translates. I think uh, that's infectious. You know, that belief in what you're talking about is infectious, whether or not you get the message. Uh, and that song is about, um, you know, I Someone who's on basically on their deathbed, but having um, you know a healthy perspective on life and appreciating the light that, the life that she's lived, uh, and uh, I think a lot of people have no clue that that's what it's about. But maybe that seeps in <laughs> somewhere uh, and uh, gives that gives that song a longevity.
0: So after the re- release of that album, you guys get nominated for your first Juno. So this is for best new group. What does that first Juno nomination mean to you guys? I mean, you independently recorded and released this album and it goes on to get nominated for, you know, you guys as a best new group that that to me, that seems like such an honor versus, you know, a band that that a major label put put all this money behind it. There's this big machine in motion. It's like you guys kind of willed that into
1: existence. It was, I think, super meaningful Um, stuff like that is so not, you know, the mark of a successful song, record, act, whatever. Um, But we, you know, we were trying to, to some degree, um, uh, come up with songs that had a universal message uh, and to be, to be recognized, um, you know, uh, from a, from a group, Uh, like I think the Junos are uh, that, um, you know, has on their radar sort of stuff that is universal, stuff that is poppy and mainstream. It is what we were trying to do. And I think we were, um, uh, you know, I think it showed us that we were kind of on track with what we were trying to do. Um, And, you know, as much as whatever, like, you know, Having that, having that video be compelling for people that like we were just talking about, and having stuff start to play on the radio, um, uh, being a part of the conversation uh, is what we were trying to do, and the Junos helped that for sure. So, yeah, that was that was great. Um, some of my some of my best memories of that uh, were just of of like seeing other artists, you know, and how they did things. Uh, I remember Neil Young performed at the at that Juno ceremony. I thought that was amazing. Um, it was inspiring. Um, I know that I saw Daniel Lanois there, you know, um, being involved in the Neil Young project at, at that time as well. And that was incredibly inspiring. Um, uh, really lights a fire under you to, um, you know, to feel that, uh, that what you're doing can be said anywhere close to being in the same conversation as, as people like that, it was, it was a really inspiring moment. So around that time,
0: you guys ended up on a two-week tour of China. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of your your
1: time in China? uh pretty amazing time. the The shows were um, some of the most intense shows that we've ever played. Uh, I think it was a lot of people's, um, you know, first time seeing a rock show, and the effect that it had on on a lot of those crowds was. Uh, was pretty intense to the point where, uh, you know, after the show they would almost be in tears uh, wanting to talk to us about what a great time they had. (laughs) Um, And uh, really, yeah, really was a testament to, um, you know, how, how badly we need these things, how important music is, how important community is. Um, uh, And, and yeah, and those are, um, those are shows that, yeah, that I'll remember pretty much forever. The traveling was amazing too. We had done some traveling as a group, but, uh, as far as, you know, bonding exercises go, uh, you know, it's a long flight. Well, yeah. Locking yourself, locking yourself, uh, into that kind of commitment, uh, with four people, uh, is pretty amazing. No matter how well you already think, you know, each other, um, you know, getting sort of parachuted into a country where you nobody speaks your language and you can't even sort of read the signage, uh, really, yeah, forces you to band together <laughs> and just, yeah, weather whatever weird unknown is coming your way. The uh, survival instinct starts to kick in there. For sure, yeah, this sort of um, banding, banding together instinct was pretty strong during that time.
0: So we have a fan question from Jennifer Toy. And her question is, if you never picked up a guitar what would you have been doing instead? And then what is your favorite Colorado
1: song to play? Cool. Um, what do I want to answer first? Uh, if I never picked up a guitar, um I mean, don't know how likely that is in the grand scheme of things in the screen in the scheme of the multiple uh alternate the multiverse. That, that exists out there. Um, but maybe there's one where that happened. Um uh I probably would have um I think I mentioned briefly. I got in, into engineering. I was into planes. I think I probably would have got into uh, engineering of some kind. Um, uh, you know, maybe maybe I would have liked to work on planes. Uh, maybe I would be <laughs> contributing. Hopefully, doing something good for the world. Uh, you know, contributing to uh, you know green technologies, uh, which, which sort of became a late interest of mine uh, in studying engineering. That I that I never got to follow through on because I went on tour and made records instead, <laughs> but uh, yeah, let let's say doing something along those lines. Um, favorite Colorado song to play? Um, I don't know I'm trying to think of what the easiest Colorado song to play, and that would probably be my favorite because you get to just to sit back and enjoy as opposed to um, you know fight for every inch of uh, uh, of how good it sounds or how you know bad it doesn't sound. Um, when, when you're playing,
0: when you were playing a Colorado concert and you would look down at your set list on, on, on the stage, was there ever a a song that you would get to and you'd always get excited to play that song for whatever reason?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, uh, I mean, everybody loves playing crowd pleasers. I love playing Juliet for that reason. Um, you know, one of the later ones I love to play was Born Yesterday. Um, you know, those are pretty high energy and a lot of fun. I feel like one that always connected was "Got to Lose," and uh, I feel like that just that just sat so comfortably um, in our in our wheelhouse, in our range. You know, there wasn't anything um, uh, sort of too athletic about it. You know, where in Juliet, I gotta hit a real high note uh, uh, when I sing the chorus. Um, you know, "Born Yesterday" is really fast, and there's a lot of pretty high notes in the singing as well. Uh, But Forgot to Lose, it's so breezy and you kind of can't mess it up uh, that that definitely became a favorite of mine. It was sort of like a breather in the set, but still it wasn't it wasn't a breather in terms of it being, you know, uh, a bathroom break song. Uh, (laughs) You know, it wasn't wasn't one that people sort of snooze through, at least from my perspective. It was a nice sort of had a sing along quality to it, um, which always felt like it made like a real nice connection with the audience every time. And I liked it for that reason. So in 2011, you guys released the album Margaritaville
0: 2, The Reckoning. The first single, Good Day at the Races, it became a top 10 hit in Canada. The music video gets nominated for video of the year uh, at the Junos. The video uh, features you guys riding and racing on ostriches. Uh, What was that experience like for the rest of the world that has no idea what that's like? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, that's another sort of, Uh, you know, what's coming moment where we were like, what's coming next? And what weird thing are are we going to get to do together? And that was it. It was, uh, it was awesome. You know, I feel like there was a long stretch where we sort of didn't question things. And whatever, um, you know, bizarre next step we had to take, we would just take it. And that was uh, in the thick of all that, for sure. Um, That was so fun. I think that was the you know, the furthest we ever traveled up to that point to to make a music video that was shot in Wichita, Kansas, um, which is how far you have to go if you want to ride an ostrich. Um, and I had a blast. I, you know, I'd never ridden anything, you know, I'd never ridden a horse up to that point. Uh, Might as well start with an ostrich. Might as well start with an ostrich. Uh, A little scary because they're, you know, so dumb. They're liable just to run themselves into the wall and you with them. uh, And they have no sense of danger whatsoever. Uh, And these massive claws that if you fell off and got stepped on them, uh, you know, and got stepped on by their claws, it would probably hurt, might really hurt. So, you know, a little bit of a sense of danger, a little bit of a sense of competition, because even though you know, you're not really racing to win. You're just kind of racing to stay on like a bit of a rodeo. Uh, we, we were all a little bit competitive with each other. So it was kind of fun to see who would stay on <laughs> the longest. Uh, and I think I did pretty okay. So, so it was fun in that way, but also just, you know, another moment where, you know, we're, we're doing this thing together and nobody else, who else in the world is riding ostriches, Uh, you know, i'm sure somebody but it felt like nobody um so that we had these this experience that only we could uh relate to one another um you know uh, when it came to that experience which is you know again a great uh you know teamwork building exercise <laughs> and no band members were injured in the making of that music video not seriously injured a few of us fell off um but you know just merely a scratch as they say just a few flesh wounds just a flesh wound <laughs> That's awesome. When, when I, I, I want to
0: dive a little bit more into the music videos. Uh, when I think of Colorado, what comes to mind is a, a fun band. So at concerts, it's, it's just a party atmosphere, a fun atmosphere. There's the confetti, there's the songs that are, that are fun and you can get into. So three things come to mind with Colorado. So there's the, the fun concerts, there's your lead guitar riff to me is a big part of the sound of Colorado. just the, the clean sound, the catchy riffs, you, you, somehow you come up with all these different catchy riffs through the entire discography. To me, that's a huge part of, you know, when I hear Colorado on the radio, I can pinpoint who the band is because of your actual guitar sound and your guitar riffs. And the last thing is I think of music videos. You guys did a great job of, of coming up with unique and memorable music videos and, using the medium of the music video to really um, present the image of the band to the world. How early on did you guys know that music videos would be a very important medium of of promotion for the band? You guys were consistent across your entire career of of having a certain a certain touch to the music
1: videos for Colorado. Um, Yeah, I think I think the second video we shot was for Juliet. Was that her, after um, after the first Americano, uh, uh, after the first Americanorama video, and I think um, I think it was I think it was a meaningful one. I think uh, like we knew you know Juliet had legs as a song at that point, um, and we knew we had to um, uh we knew we had to like add a little fuel to the marketing fire for that tune uh and the music video definitely definitely felt important um we felt like it perfectly captured the idea of the song and and we knew that that was something uh that we wanted to continue doing um you know plus Plus, we had a great time making them. We always enjoyed making videos, Um, you know, not just for making the videos, but because we believed in the music and we wanted to, um, uh, you know, we wanted to expose our music to as many people as possible. And that definitely felt like the way to go at the time. I don't know, you know, I don't know how many people still watch music videos. I do from time to time uh, when there's a song I really love and, you know, um, an artist who, uh, I'm curious to see how they've decided to represent their music visually, uh, you know, but how much music is being discovered through videos, through viral videos these days, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's the same. You're saying um, it was different back when we were growing up and it was the M much music and the MTV that just 24 seven was playing music. Man, it was definitely different when we were growing up. And I think we still had a bit of that mentality, uh, you know, whatever it was 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago where, you know, a music video, if it sort of got in rotation, maybe not on much music, but it, but on YouTube, uh, you know, and was something that could spread, you know, both by word of mouth and by that time uh, through social media, uh, that you could discover artists through music videos. And and because of that reason, it was really important that the visual statement that you made dovetailed with uh, the musical statement that you were making. um. Uh, so it was really important to us that, yeah, they had that look. They had this like joie de vivre that I think a lot of our music uh, tried to tap into. Um, and yeah, and that it was just, yeah, like a, a representation of um, how we wanted people to feel when they A, listened to us, or B, came to a show. Um, so, you know, in that music video, in that music video for Juliet, there is, you know, there's a continuous cutting to a scene of people kind of just partying around us. And, and that was reflected in the fact that we always invited people on stage to just sort of rock out at the end of all of our shows. Um, you know, that very thing that we did at our shows, we wanted to represent consciously in our music videos. So yeah, we went to some lengths anyways to, um, uh, to make our videos feel like like our shows did.
0: In 2013, you guys released the album White Paint. There's three singles, Pick Me Up, So It Goes, and Desire 126. Were you guys feeling massive pressure following up the success of Record in a Bag? We,
1: uh, I think we just put pressure on ourselves. We lo- We loved our first record. We had so much fun playing it. We had a ton of fun writing it and recording it. Uh, record two I, I think was like a little less fun to record there was um a little more head scratching is this as good as record one uh, or is this capturing the same thing or you know other thoughts of is this evolving at all from our first record and I think there was a conscious decision to like try to evolve as much as we could uh, while not becoming a completely different band because we liked the band that we were we, you know, I think when people sort of just make music and don't think too much about it, they can't help but be themselves. But when you do start to think about it, you run the risk of um, sort of masking who you are. Uh, And I think we, uh, I think we encountered that a little bit. We maybe we ran that risk a little bit uh, of, um, you know, sort of, Thinking to the point where we might want to introduce sort of trappings to the music, extra sounds, extra backup vocals, extra synthesizers, um, you know, extra percussion. We can do all this stuff that we didn't do on record one. Let's think about what we want to do. I think we came, you know, maybe came close to uh, to masking who we were on that record, but I don't, I, I don't think we fully did um, in a good way. I think it was still us, and we managed to to maintain sort of a distillation of who we were on that record. Um, uh, but it was mo- it was more of a battle. I think everybody's second record is more of a battle than their first record um, because you do have a first record to reflect on, and maybe that is in the back of your head. Um, it can it, it can be a great thing to be coming from somewhere and to evolve and to have ideas of of um, of where you want to go. Of where you're coming from, that is great. But it also gives you something to reflect on, which isn't necessarily the best, you know.
0: Yeah, they say it's it's you. You have your entire life to to write the first album, right? You had from twelve, where you start songwriting, up until say your early twenties to do record in a bag, and then you have maybe a year or two before you have to do the follow-up. So it's it's, uh, it's it's not equal there, you know,
1: for the amount of time you have. Totally. And I think we were in the situation at that point that a lot of other artists are in after their first record where you're touring a lot more, uh, you're kind of more tired. Uh, you don't, you know, while you're touring necessarily always feel like um, trying to generate new ideas, but you know, that record too, has got to happen soon. Um, so you try to force yourself. Uh, and as soon as you start trying to force things, um, again, you maybe get away from sort of uh you know what you might do naturally and more towards just a bit bit of artifice to like you know just to have an idea um you know just to have an idea there for something uh that could go on record two um it yeah record two you know took a lot of time record three also took a lot of time um but for some reason yeah record two felt like more of a battle to try and um you know, both be ourselves, but to evolve to some degree.
0: The the second single, So It Goes, the song and the music video got a lot of attention because of the story with Menno's grandfather. For our listeners that maybe haven't heard that
1: song or haven't seen that music video, can you just sh- share that story briefly? For sure, yeah. The song is about how Menno's granddad was a resistance fighter for the Dutch during World War II. Uh, and the crazy story that goes along with that um you know it i think is an amazing song i think it's you know probably one of the most meaningful songs we've ever written um and uh i think is is one of uh the tunes on that second record that is just like super authentically us because it is such an authentic story um he he was yeah a resistance fighter um and survived the war uh but before the war finished was a prisoner was a prisoner in a nazi uh prison uh and was going to be put to death by uh the guy who ran that prison uh but whose life was spared um and in return spared the life of of that guy who ran the prison after the war when he was put on trial and said, no, this guy is a good guy. He spared, you know, he spared my life. He's, he, um, you know, had compassion and he's not a killer. Um, And that's all written there in the song, um, which, uh, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of great story songs out there. And I I think that's one of them. And the music video is
0: the, the, the guy who the story is about, it's his grandson, Menno, and then the prison guard that was also spared, like they saved each other's lives. And then there's yeah. his grandson that Menno meets. So it's like the different generations that wouldn't be here, if not for the two grandpas saving each other. Uh, it's yep. crazy.
1: It was really crazy. Um, we had this idea, like, what if we could track him down? Uh, and it took a little while, but Yeah. The fact that it, you know, the fact that it was actually possible and actually happened continues to blow my mind. The, the cover
0: art for white paint, uh, there's a unique story about how you guys came up with that and it it goes on to get nominated for a Juno for recording package of the year. So that's the band's third Juno nomination. Can you share the story behind, uh, I remember seeing a video of the making
1: of the, the cover of this album. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, the record cover itself before we get to the white paint portion is a photograph of uh a stained glass that menno's grandfather made later in his life uh and it uh is a real like stained glass window in a real church in toronto and it's still there so it's a photo of that uh and then the white paint portion uh is literal white house paint uh covering up that stained glass and you know the idea being uh you know he's gone but he's still there uh on you know under under the layers uh you know that exist after his time uh and the white paint peels off and the stained glass is under there and is you know revealed uh to whatever degree you want to scratch that paint off you know and I, i think that's a great analogy for all of our past and all of um, you know the people that we've had in our lives that may not be around anymore. Um, you can always delve back uh, uh, into the time where they were they were around, and they're always there under the surface, right? So, to uh, to uh, apply the paint portion of this cover, uh, we had we threw a massive party in a warehouse and invited basically all of our friends <laughs> to come join us and. The only rule is just paint some record covers while you're there. We had 10,000 to get through. uh, And so we had, you know, we invited as many people as we could. It was an absolute blast. We stayed up all night painting record covers. And then in the sober light of day, we realized that we only painted about a couple thousand. (laughs) with everybody partying so much, we kind of forgot to do the main job. So we had to go back to that warehouse for about another week uh, with the only aim of finishing covering all the records that hadn't been painted. Uh, And uh, it was painful (laughs) because we were pretty in pretty rough shape for for a few days following that party. But uh, yeah, we did it. And that's how the records went out to stores, covered in white paint. So we have a fan question from Brittany Dakin. Her question is: What's your favorite? What was your favorite place to perform at? Okay, cool. Um, that's funny. I know Brittany too. Hey, Brittany. Uh, she's an old friend as well. I, inf- I infiltrated your whole friend yeah. group, your whole fan base for Colorado. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's so nice of my friends and family to uh to care and to um you know to care about having some answers to these questions. Uh. We played, yeah, we played so many cool places over the years. Sounds like this implies a place that I played multiple times. You know what? Um, so I'm going to go with uh, with something that we, a place that we played, um, you know, multiple times. Um, but even then there's a lot, um, you know, there's a, there's a few really meaningful places. Uh, we, we played one place that we played a lot over the years is the Horseshoe in Toronto. Um, I love playing there and going back there um, because it's where, you know, we played our first first out of town show (laughs) as a band uh, ever was there. Uh, You know, our first experience of being on tour uh, was there. So, so I love that place a lot. Um, uh, But I like, I like playing in other places across Canada as well. Um, You know, in, in Ottawa, it's called the 27 club now, but we used to play zaphods a lot um, as far as rock clubs goes, that's like just a great classic um you know indie rock bar um which I really love um you know for that reason. Um, but yeah, like you know we we played obviously some bigger stages at times too and and I always loved playing uh blues fest anytime we played ottawa blues fest i think that is just such a classic uh festival and now kind of stands as one of the biggest festivals in canada that still exists um because many festivals have sort of come and gone over the years i think covid killed a few um but that one still persists and i think it's been amazing year after year and i so love what it does um you know, not just for Ottawa, but for music in Canada, I think that is such a great institution. So I've always loved playing there. Um, uh, you know, I can think of other places, for some reason, uh, shows in Edmonton are always crazy. People, uh, I, I think party really hard. <laughs> in a- anything that gets them out of the cold winters and into I think a, so. a concert. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, so there's a place called the Starlight Club in Edmonton. I love playing uh, it's an old movie theater, so the the floor like slopes downwards towards the stage, uh, which is a really fun quirk about that place. Um, I love play anytime we any chance we got to go to Newfoundland. I always loved because it's uh, it's so different and it's so its own thing. Um, you know, I always loved playing uh, playing in Montreal. Um, we played uh, you know so many fun places there. Um, you know, so when I, when I say, when, uh, someone says, what, where do you love to perform the most? Uh, I would say just about everywhere in Canada has an amazing, uh, an amazing place or two that I, I love going back to. I, I love playing over the years and, um, you know, I continue to go back to a little bit, um, touring with anyway gang now.
0: So the, I was in the GTA for 11 years. I moved back to Ottawa two years ago. So for the last two years, uh, I've gone to Blues Fest for the entire, I get the full festival pass. So I'm there for, you know, 12 to 14 days each summer and it's been amazing. So uh, I, I feel you on the on the Blues Fest being so great. Uh, in 2015, you guys released the album 111 Songs. Can you share with our listeners what project led you guys to having to write such a ridiculous amount of songs
1: for sure. With the release of our second album, we offered for, for those who wanted to uh, get an extra special experience along with the pre order of their album, we offered to write a custom song. Uh, And I think we charged like five bucks extra to write a custom song for anybody who wanted one, Uh, which in retrospect was crazy because we got like, like you said 111 requests for custom songs uh before we cut it off because <laughs> we would have got more if we hadn't uh, stopped accepting requests at that point we regret this decision immediately <laughs> we regretted it rather quickly and it didn't take long to get those 111 uh so we were committed though to writing 111 songs we spent literally two years in the studio writing and recording all of these 111 songs because for some reason we couldn't bring ourselves just to like whip off silly little songs although in some cases we did for the most part we you know we thought about who this person was and they gave us a couple of details about themselves to go off of to figure out a song direction and we would pour over these details and try to come up with something uh that was a real song as good as we possibly could and it took us such a long time um but we we came up in the process with some songs that wound up on record three so uh, it was a fun project in and of itself and i mean we i think we became better songwriters as a result because of how many songs we had to write uh and that was sort of the beginning of me figuring out how to produce music too because there was so much music to make that we all had to sort of take on uh production roles um uh, and there was no choice but to, you know, but to figure it out. And so, um, so that was, I credit that project with getting me into production.
0: And you guys released one of the songs as a single, which was called Firefly. It became a top three hit in Canada. And I could be wrong, but that's the song, uh, that it was written for Annie Murphy, the uh, award-winning actress from Schitt's Creek, who's married to Colorado singer Menno. Uh, how does, uh, I don't know. How does that end up being out of 111 songs or just Menno put a little something extra into that song for her, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did. So during that time, uh, those guys' apartment burned down. Oh, man. What that song is about. So uh, we did. We all put something something totally extra into that. And, you know, because that was a personal story, um, it sort of became close to our hearts. And one that we Yes, did for this project, but uh that we also, you know, we went and re-recorded um with our producer Gus Van Gogh. Uh who to do to, to really give it the the Colorado treatment. Um and yeah, that's what that song is about. You know, along with all of the other songs that we were writing, you know, uh with details about other fans for the 111 songs, uh, that one was super special because you know this happened to them this actually happened to them while we were doing this project um and we couldn't help but write about it how how amazing
0: is it the amount of success that Annie's gone on to have i mean winning an emmy nominated for a golden globe uh, i i just wa- i love black mirror i just watched the new season and she's in in she's the star of one of the episodes with selma hayek you knew her, her long before the 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 crazy acting career what is what has it meant to you to see her go on you know you guys as a band go on to have all this success and her uh, as an actress goes on to have that
1: success man it's pretty cool um she and i have been friends since we were about 15 so way before the band uh was even a glimmer on the horizon and uh, just as buddies, you know, at one point, uh, we told each other, you know, uh, she said, I want to be an actor. And I was like, Oh, cool. I want to be a musician. (laughs) And at the time you don't maybe necessarily believe, uh, that you will achieve those things. (laughs) So it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, a, for me, I love the role that I've been able to play in the music industry, but I think it's been especially cool to see, um, you know, the recognition she's been able to get and the amazing things she's been able to do uh, as an actor. So in 2017, you guys released the album Born
0: Yesterday. There's three more singles. Born Yesterday, I Got You, Eloise. Uh, it, it's it's so hard for a band to sound unique with the amount of music that's created globally. Uh, Colorado from the very start had a very unique sound. How important
1: was that to the band to cultivate that that uniqueness? Um really important, not because we necessarily wanted to distinguish ourselves from other bands, but we wanted to, we just wanted to like what we were making. Uh, so yeah, the end goal wasn't to be distinct. The end goal was to feel authentic. Uh, and we just had, you know, an instant sort of reaction against anything that just didn't feel right. Um, and you know, we don't have to, I won't do this, but there are songs on our records that I I could point to that I think feel a little less like us than others. Um, And I think every band has that, you know, because you're striving for something or, uh, you know, some people strive for something that, um, you know, only you could have written. And and I think if you pull that off, uh, then you're never gonna get sick of playing those songs. You're you're never gonna get sick of talking those songs, talking about those songs um and you're yeah you're just your repertoire is going to serve you for a long t- time um and i think um eh, you know with with the record you just brought up uh you know the born yesterday record i think um we had kind of figured out what it was that we were good at and what made us feel like ourselves and we were able to um uh you know we, we were able to sort of hone it to, I think, like a finer point on that record uh, than we did, Uh, certainly on record two, that as much as I love record two, uh, white paint, I feel like it was like striving for for something and experimenting um, and was sort of a stepping stone towards record three when I think, um, you know, those experiments um, sort of congealed or coalesced. So we have a fan question sent in. This is from
0: Sean Siddons, uh, who's the guy on Twitter that knew about the Delegates. And he said that he, so he has the Delegates albums and he, he said that one day he heard this Colorado band on the radio and he recognized the voice immediately from the delegate. So he's the guy that knows all this music history that I wasn't aware of. So uh, Sean's question is, I know that Colorado toured the UK in 2017 with some 41
1: would, would love to know if he has any good stories about that tour. (laughs) Um, That was an amazing tour. That was a really interesting tour um, because Derek Wibley, I mean, famously, you know, this isn't this isn't top secret or anything, but he, um, you know, uh, suffered, uh, you know, suffered from alcoholism for a while before that tour, but then um, got managed to completely kick it, sort of completely cut it out. uh, And we were on two tours. We were on one with them before before he went through that transformation um, in Canada and the U S and then we were on that one, which took place shortly afterwards that he just totally, um, decided to cut everything out. Uh, and he was so amazing. He was such, um, a master of the stage, killed every single show playing to five to 10,000 people a night. I've, you know, I've seen a lot of bands perform, but, uh, as far as front men go, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who matches up to him, I think. Um, So first of all, it was amazing in that way. Um, Keeping, keeping up with those guys is, uh, is a task when you're in a van and and they're in a tour bus and it's like a really, uh, you know, a really breakneck pace is, is tough, but they still like take the time to like be incredibly sweet. Um, Incredibly sweet. I think I, It was my birthday on the tour and they uh, took the time to not only get me a cake, but they got me uh, a pair of socks. That was like the local UK soccer team, uh, wherever we were, I think it was, I don't think it was Manchester, but uh, that's like the only soccer team I know. So that's what comes to mind, Uh, uh, which was such a sweet gesture. And they always um, found a way to, um, make such an intense tour, um, have a, have a sense of, um, you know, of comfort and the feeling of being sort of at home with family, which was amazing.
0: And when you mentioned that it was hard to keep up with them, it's they're they're a band with a tour bus with a, a higher driver and they could they could sleep at night while the driver is driving to the next city. And then you guys are four band members driving your own van. So while they're getting sleep, you guys are actually up driving through the night. Is that what was so hard to, to
1: Basically, keep up? And a lot of opening bands wind up in that position. uh, uh where you're like, you're huffing and puffing to make it to soundcheck, whereas, you know, they're waking up in the next town after having slept on the bus overnight. Uh, You're doing exactly as you said, you're driving overnight, there's something really fun about it. uh, And when you're in the moment, it's like it's like a sport. uh, And your adrenaline is pumping and it keeps you going. But at the end of a tour like that, uh, you need to sleep for about two weeks. (laughs)
0: So in 2019, you guys released the album Retaliation Vacation. You guys actually knew in advance before releasing the album that this would be your last album and that you guys were going to tour behind it as well. That would be your final tour. Yeah. Okay. And and yeah, it's, it's strange, I guess. Normally it's like, you know, a band is feuding and they just break up in the moment, you know, it's not planned in advance. So it was, it just after so many years of being a band and hustling 24 seven, it just felt amongst all the band members. Okay. Maybe it's time to, uh, to, to go on some other adventures outside of Colorado.
1: Yeah, I think so. Like we, um, you know, we loved the band that we, that we became, we loved, um I think the initial idea for our band like so much and we got to a point where we felt like uh we we didn't totally want to do the same thing, but we also didn't really want to evolve <laughs> like Colorado to us just uh you know like it you know like was a you know as much a a you know was a philosophy that we didn't want to like, you know, suddenly break apart and rebuild from the ashes. We wanted it just to exist as we um initially saw it. And we were basically teenagers when we started the band, you know, or in our, our really early 20s. And we got to this point where we're like, you know, in our mid to late 30s. um, and, and where we had to ask the question, okay, like, do we want to keep making records like this? Um, You know, with like, the, the sort of fun band mentality that you talked about. Um, do we want to just keep making fun band records? Do we want to evolve? do we want to try and come become something different? If so, what should that something different be? Uh, and if we don't want to do either of those things, does it make sense um, just to take a you know, just to like basically retire the band uh, um, you know, for now, let's say, you know, who knows, uh, what the future might hold, but it definitely felt like the right decision at that time um, to, you know, everybody wants to evolve. You don't want to just get stuck in a loop and live it for your entire life. Um, and it felt like we were in danger of doing that if we just kept making Colorado records. Retaliation Vacation uh, was fun to make because we put zero expectations on ourselves. And, you know, because we knew it was our last record. um you know, we didn't feel like we needed to match up to any other thing. So it allowed us to like experiment a little bit with evolving in some directions without worrying about whether we were invent reinventing the wheel or like, you know, how are we going to brand this record? If it's not a normal Colorado record, Um, how are we going to market it? How are we going to market it? What is the feeling going to be? We didn't have to care about any of that stuff. We could just make fun music and hang out in the studio together for a few months. um, You know, one last time. Uh, which uh, I'm so glad we did it that way. Um, you know, it's it's allowed each of us to evolve individually. Um, you know, Menno with solo stuff and working on the record label Royal Mountain, me with production, um, and also, as you said, <laughs> rumors of a solo record. Uh, um, you know, which I'm, which I'm working on now. Um, and then, you know, Jake and Dean doing their own thing. Jake is teaching, uh, Dean, uh, is working with collective arts as, as an event manager. So putting on shows, um, uh, you know, and doing his own thing as well. It's allowed us to, to do that. And if we do make more Colorado music in the future, I think it's going to benefit greatly, um, from us each going in our own directions at, uh, at this point. And making that collective decision in advance allowed
0: that album and that final tour to be more of a celebration than like mourning the, the death of something. Absolutely. We had nothing but the best time with it. So we have a fan question from Aubrey Kirkpatrick. Uh, her question is, can you think
1: of any memorable fan encounters? Uh, that's cool. Uh is also a really old friend. Uh, what's up, Aubrey? <laughs> what's up? What's up? She lives in New Zealand now, uh, which is crazy. Um uh any memorable fan encounters? Um geez, let me think there's so, so many. Um we we were talking about blues fest uh, a little bit ago. We had uh some kids who were fans of ours join us one blues fest to to sing a tune to sing uh twist and shout on stage. Uh, and I think you know our minds were blown because they were so good. They played and sang, we played and sang, and sort of backed them up um, while while they did their thing. And we've remained friends with them ever since. Uh, so you know, from it's so cool how we sort of went from them being fans and just sort of like wanting to say hi after a show to, um, to them performing with us on a big stage in front of thousands of people, and then like maintaining that relationship afterwards. I mean, that's, that's one of so, so many. Um, but I feel like, um, yeah, we've, like, we weirdly, <laughs> like became friends with, you know, our fans, and a lot of them, uh, we still talk to and keep in touch with, it's cool. We have another fan question.
0: I want to make sure I get through all of them. You know, they made they they took the time to send in a question. So I give them all a shout out. So this is from John Terpstra. Uh, John's question is Colorado. Well, he has a statement first. Colorado is one of my favorite bands. I saw them over a dozen times, uh, four times during the final tour. Great band as well as a great group of guys. Always friendly with fans and thank and thankful that we attend their shows. His questions are what is his favorite song to cover? And if he could play in any other
1: band, what would it be? Oh man. Okay. Favorite song to cover. Um, yeah, we played Damn It by Blink182 a lot. <laughs> nice. You know, that comes to mind as just a fun one. That's the last song we played on stage together. Um, you know, uh, so it holds a special place in my heart. Uh geez, if I could be in any other band, um yeah, I mean, there's there's so many that I feel The Beatles. Be- Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's hard to answer that question. If we're really going there. um, Yeah, I would have loved to, um, you know, be be in a rock band in the 60s, not even necessarily a successful rock band. um, But, you know, we all have this, you know, romantic view of what making music in the 60s must have must have been like, Um, I would have loved to have experienced that on some level. I think it would have been pretty cool. So we have some kind words sent in from the one and only
0: Jake Boyd, (laughs) a.k.a. your brother, a.k.a. Drummer for Colorado. Uh, Here's what Jake has to say. I love Nick. He is the absolute best and only brother I've ever had. (laughs) Being in a band, multiple bands actually, with him has been one of the greatest pleasures of my life. On top of his excellent guitar playing, singing, and music production, he's one of the most thoughtful, prolific, and hardworking songwriters you're ever likely to meet. His musical abilities are only matched by how great of a guy Nick is. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone within the Canadian music industry who has anything short of love uh, for him. Also, please ask him to talk about his still unreleased solo material because a lot (laughs) of it is absolutely fantastic. So that's from Jake.
1: Oh that's great. Um never hurts to uh you know to have some words to pump you up on a daily basis. <laughs> I get that from Jake a lot. I I really appreciate that. And he uh, you mentioned and then he mentioned
0: this uh yet to be released solo album. So uh, as we wrap up the interview, can you share anything for the fans uh uh what the the style of music will be uh, is it just a few singles, an EP, a full length. Is there any time frame? Not to put too much
1: pressure on you, but just as oh, a fan,
0: I'm... we want to know. You know.
1: Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Um. I'll take every opportunity to talk about it. You know, and start plugging it. Um. It's it's softer stuff. Um. Singer songwriter. Uh. Stuff. Um. But still kind of with some electric guitars. Um. Uh. And and some drums. I have a lot of influences. Uh, but you know, from sort of softer sort of 60s, uh, sort of like folk pop stuff, um, to sort of more recent stuff, um, Elliot Smith, um, Andy Schoff, uh, and uh yeah. And, and stuff like that. Um, so I'm super excited. I was getting pretty close to finishing it, but then a couple of weeks ago, my car got broken into and I had a few hard drives stolen, one of which had my entire solo record on it. So I'm just about to start from scratch <laughs> recording it. Oh man, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. It was one of those moments uh, where you kind of can't believe your eyes and it's, you know, the situation was so bad that I had to just kind of stand there and laugh. Yeah, man, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> I have
0: two final questions. Can you can you handle two more questions here? For sure, I can.
1: My my little boy is starting to wake up, but
0: I think we got time. All right, we'll blast through these final two. Uh, when you look back on your life and career, what are you most proud of? And
1: what are you most grateful for? Man, I think I'm most proud of uh, maintaining a good attitude uh, through... Um, uh, through my years in the music industry i think there are a lot of opportunities to um to get downtrodden um, and either get bitter or um you know disheartened uh or jealous uh or hard on yourself um or you know sort of lose perspective um whether that means uh through success or through the lack of success but um i still love it i i love I love so much working with other artists, I love working on their songs, I love working on my songs, I love playing on stage, and I love all the personalities that I get to meet uh, doing this work, so I'm, yeah, I'm just really proud of um, hopefully maintaining, um, you know, an attitude where I'm still excited to show up to work every day, um, and then uh, what was the second one? What are you grateful for looking back oh, well, on? Well, I'm career? grateful for the people that I work with. I'm grateful for my entire band. I'm entire, I'm grateful for, uh, you know, uh, my wife and everybody who has supported me um, that have allowed me to to do this, whether by, um, you know, making, you know, space and time for the things that I needed to, to do my work um, or, you know, encouraging me uh through the words or from being at the show um yeah really really grateful for everyone uh around me um either in the music industry or out of it that is um that has been supportive so normally my final question is if you could go back in time
0: and whisper words of advice to your 10-year-old self what mm-hmm. would that advice be but in your case you have this young son so let's <laughs> let's let's use your son in this example sure. uh, If you, if you could take all your lifetime of experience of lessons of mentorships of ups and downs, if you could take all the lessons you've learned, uh, in your life so far, and you could whisper words of advice to your cute little son there to help guide him through this, this human
1: experience, what words of advice do you, do you provide? Yeah, I love that. I think, um, a big part of it has to do with just spending time with people who make you happy. Um, that to me has, has led to a lot of what I've done, uh, feeling like you're in the right place with the right people, no matter what you're doing, uh, is, is kind of everything. Uh, so, so that, that would be a big part of it. And I, and I've been lucky that, um, uh, yeah, that my journey has led to me, to the people who I absolutely believe I, you know, I was meant to know in my life. So as we
0: wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a guitarist, as a singer songwriter, as an audio engineer, as a producer. Uh, I want to uh, acknowledge you for being a great ambassador for Manitob, for Ottawa. You know, showing you know the the young musicians in this area that it is possible to have a big dream and to pursue a career in music. It can work out. You can achieve success. You've shown to us that that is possible. Uh, I want to thank you for all the great music you've put out with Colorado over the years i mentioned the uh the debut album here has been in rotation for me since its release so thank you for that Uh, i want to uh acknowledge you for opening up your own recording studio which is giving back it's it's helping other musicians to um to have a safe space and encouraging space to um, pursue their music. And it gives them a final product that, that, when you you help them go from having nothing to having something, having their dream in their hands that they can then share with the world. So you're making dreams come true with, with the studio work. And I appreciate that. And then last but not least, I want to thank you for sitting down with me for the last two hours uh, for this interview. Uh, I've been a fan of yours, a fan of your band, a fan of the music uh, since the very beginning from the same music scene. So I really appreciate your, your time uh, Nixon. Thank you so
1: much been my absolute pleasure Joel thank you so much for having me and yeah congrats on this great podcast and uh that was a great interview man thank you so much
0: you're very welcome so to the uh, Nixon fans to
1: the Colorado fans
0: thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode if you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast please take a moment to subscribe like comment and share what i want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a 2 hour deep dive interview you can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joelle Martin Mastery. Joelle is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joelle Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message. And I'll see you on the next episode.